My first rifle was a 243. Papa gave daddy and daddy gave to me. And they taught me how to shoot with a steady hand. I guess that's something you don't understand. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody into another episode of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. This is, I believe, episode 582. Man, time flies when you're having fun. Can't believe it's been a dozen years now. Whew. We're just getting started, <laughs> I think, anyway. Uh, but thank you all so much for being here. Thanks to Mossberg Firearms as well, our presenting sponsor. And speaking of Mossberg, I just got a new threaded 243 to pair with the uh, AB suppressor. But, and I don't know if it's like this where you live, but in North Texas, man, we've had so much rain that I haven't been able to, number one, get to the deer lease to fill feeders, much less do any shooting, or get out to the range. Like the place that I go has pretty much been underwater for the better part of 40 days now. It's just been crazy. Henry has had makeups of makeups of makeups rained out. Poor kid can't get a baseball game in to save his life. I think he forgot what his coaches even look like. But, uh, yeah, it's been crazy. The lakes are full, I'll tell you that, which means we're going to have plenty of water for ducks, but they might be spread out. You never know how those uh, wet springs are going to translate into upcoming duck seasons. But uh, if history repeats itself, I'm going to say it's going to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we've got a great show lined up for you today, and I'll tell you all about it momentarily. It's going to be elk intensive, but first, you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos, because we are ready to rock and roll. And off the top, we'll be joined by Zeno Keeney. He is a resident of Reserve, New Mexico, and he recently joined maybe 10 or so other landowners in suing New Mexico Game and Fish due to an ever-increasing and expanding population of elk near the Gila National Forest in southwest New Mexico. The Gila, by the way, that's like 16 A, B, C, D, uh, all of those units coveted by elk hunters in the lower 48. It's like one of the premier regions to hunt elk. And a tag subsequently that is very hard to draw. I put in every year, never drawn it. Although I did get my uh, archery elk tag in the mail this week from New Mexico Game and Fish. Pumped about that, uh, but certainly <laughs> not the Gila. Um, but Zeno will be here. They've got a real problem on their hands as these ranchers, they're, it's basically human wildlife conflict from the standpoint of they can't run cattle or as many cattle on their property as they want to or need to in order to survive because of the number of elk. Well, there's got to be a give and take here, right? And I'm not saying that the landowners are right or wrong. Um, looking forward to visiting with Zeno to try to get to the bottom of that. Um, but it seems like the give and take is more on the take side from the Game and Fish Department anyway. But we'll let him share his thoughts on that topic. And then something I'm really excited about, Brian Barney of Eastman's Elevated. Uh, he's the host of that podcast, a great podcast. 
He'll join us to talk elk. He's also a hell of an archery elk hunter and tar. I mean, like, if it's not a herd bull, the dude's not interested. But he's going to give us some insight on digital scouting. A lot of us Southerners, you know, it's logistically impossible to just run up to Montana or drive over to New Mexico for a week. Um, we don't have that luxury. You know, the trailhead's not an hour away from the house. So we rely on resources like Google Earth. So Brian will give us some tips on what to look for geographically, you know, what kind of features you want to hone in on when doing your digital scouting. And then also some outside-of-the-box tips on how to arrow that big herd bull. Uh, One thing he's going to tell us is, well, I I mean, I was blown away uh, by something he does not do that just about every other elk hunter in the woods does do. Uh, So interesting stuff coming up with Brian. Looking forward to picking his brain on elk hunting here in just a little bit. That's what's on the docket for today. And since archery elk hunting is by far my favorite thing to do every year, uh, it's one that I'm really excited about. Let's do this. Let's do a quick giveaway since we are going to be talking archery elk. How about a three-pack of the broadheads I'll be taking into the elk woods in September? That's right, a three-pack of Crimson Talon broadheads up for grabs today. Just email the word, let's say, archery. That's archery to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com and you are entered into this week's Crimson Talon giveaway. Let's knock out a quick break. Up next, New Mexico rancher and landowner Zeno Keeney drops by right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. My jeans are faded and my boots are brown. I stand for passion and I stand. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Looking back on the lessons he taught me throughout the years. Keep your word as your bond and keep your chin up, whether good or bad. Son, this is your dad. Look at Buddy Ray Johnston. Son, this is your dad bringing us back on. SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for making time for us this week. Uh, Thanks to Mossberg Firearms as well. Uh, We're about to head over to southwest New Mexico to get into an ever-increasing issue when it comes to human-wildlife conflict. But before we do that, this segment brought to you by Safari Club International. SCI is the worldwide leader in big game conservation. They are passionate about Things right here in North America. It's not all just good old boy. You know, if you don't hunt in Africa, then this isn't the club for you. No, this is the club for every hunter. They put their money where their mouth is, both here and abroad. And to join this great group of conservationists, just head over to safariclub.org. Uh, all right, let's bring on our first 
guest today joining us from the beautiful land of enchantment, my second, and, and frankly, the state that I've hunted the most besides Texas, New Mexico. And uh, that's obviously because of proximity, but I don't know how. I just keep drawing these elk tags, uh, knock on wood. But uh, third generation rancher and landowner, Zeno Keeney, joins us now. Thanks for being here, Zeno. It's nice to be with you. My pleasure. Uh, so first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself, and, and I believe you're joining us from southwest uh, New Mexico. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I'm a resident of Reserve, New Mexico. I'm in Zuni today because I'm a teacher here, but I go back to Reserve every weekend. Uh, I grew up on a ranch in, in near Reserve and have a farm uh, there in Reserve. That's the reason I go back every weekend. Okay. And um, how long has your family, I, I do think you guys have a history of, of ranching. Yeah, my great-granddad came to uh, Reserve from Fredericksburg, Texas in the 1880s. Oh, wow. My uh, great-granddad had a, well, he had a ranch, my dad and, my well, my granddad and my dad, and then they all three had the place that I'm at, also the farm. Um, my dad sold the ranch back in, well, about 30 years ago because elk started to come in on the ranch. Hmm. We were introduced to the Gila, wild, Gila Wilderness they were supposed to stay in a 40-mile area, and now they're hundreds of miles away, just everywhere. And they've done a lot of damage to our properties there in reserve. So the elk there, they actually reintroduced? They brought them in from Wyoming, I believe. It was another state that they brought them in from. Yes, sir. Huh. Well, they've certainly done well there. I mean, that's like one of the yeah. hardest. The Gila is like, you talk about dream hunts. I mean, people always want to apply for, for the Gila. And, uh, you know, I usually put it as my third choice just cause I know I'm not going to get it, but, uh, certainly big, big bull elk there, huge racks and a very sought after tag in the lower 48. Right. There's a lot of, a lot of elk there. Mm -hmm. Are some... you an elk hunter yourself? Well, I've hunted some and, and then, you know, uh, the game department wouldn't give me any tags and they says, well, you can shoot them on your property. Well, I did that. I shot those six or seven and they started feeding the wolves the elk and i told no i'm not gonna allow that i'm gonna make sure that they go to some people that need the meat here in reserve and so we did that and then they they canceled my permits for a year because of that and threatened to cancel me for three years if i start shooting them again even but though they I, told you you could they told me i could and then they used it against me that's right huh and now you guys have uh the mexican gray wolves there or what that's right. They've reintroduced them there. And I don't know whether they were there or not. My great, great granddad and granddad, my granddad told me that there was wolves there, but it didn't sound like the Mexican wolves. They sound like big wolves that did a lot of damage back then. And I don't know what kind of wolves we've got there. I've seen some, some wolves there in Arizona that look like timber wolves to me. They're huge and they have, oh, six or seven inch brown hair. They don't look anything like a Mexican wolf and they had collars on them. Hmm. That was just across the state line from reserve. Okay. So I, I was reading this article and you were quoted in there. Uh, you're part of a group of landowners that is actually suing the uh, New Mexico Game and Fish Department. Tell us a little bit about what the conflict is there. Like I said, I mean, uh, they'll come in and they tear up our fences. They eat all our feed, drink the water from the river. And then last year, like I told you, we didn't have any water in the river and they we're all over the place on my place. We had 500 head at least during the day, even. I couldn't run them out of the property. I don't mind hunters at all. In fact, uh, 
I have some cabins and welcome there to to hunt, but uh, I wish that they would give out enough permits and and, and give us uh, money that we're out of our pocket to pay for the damage that they do. And I wish we had more hunters to bring the population down. So, I mean, this brings up an interesting question because here we have these elk that have been reintroduced and your family's been in ranching for over a hundred years. What the land can only support so many animals, whether that's cattle or elk. Um, how, how many acres is your property? I have, we, my sister and I have 421. I believe she has 47 of that 121. Okay. But anyway, 85 of it's irrigated. And of course, that's just like a, a salad bar when you start irrigating it because all the elk want to come there because there's nothing green in the area. Sure. Like right now, they're all coming in. The alfalfa? No, sir. It's just permanent pasture. Okay. Right. Um, how many cattle do you typically, I mean, what is your goal? Well, I, we had a hundred head there and that's what I ran. And now I'm down to 22 head because they're just, the feed just won't support them. And, and I can't afford to buy feed to feed them year round. Yeah. So has the game and fish department given you permits in years past? Well, I, like I said, we had 16 years ago, I got a, a bull tag. And when they, when we entered into this program, uh, they came to us and said, well, we'll guarantee you two bull, bull elk permits every year. And we agreed to it. And uh, we got two for two years. And then they cut us to one. And then uh, the last I got was a cow elk permit in northern New Mexico, which basically was worthless because, uh, you know, I don't live in northern New Mexico and didn't know anyone to sell it. Well, how does that help you with your problem? That's like... Right. Fool's gold. Like, just, and what I can understand is like I sold an acre uh, off of the property and that guy got two elk permits within two years. It's just, uh, I don't understand it. It's just some people are polit politically connected or have connections somewhere and are able to get these permits while others of us are so not. So you sold an acre of your property and this guy was able to pull two permits on an acre? That's correct. That's absurd. Huh. Yeah. And are these other landowners that are in the lawsuit with you all experiencing the same type of deal? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of them's hauled over a million gallons of water out to the forest because he has one of these forest permits for cattle. And uh, the game department's never, or the forest service never hauled a gallon of water out there. And of course the elk drink half of the water or more than half when they get out there. Um, he's got, I don't know, 50 or 60 miles of fence to fix. And the game department doesn't help him there either. Um, the same is true of there's another lady that has probably 800 and some acres in three different locations along the river and the elk, uh, she can't get any elk permits either. Uh, oh. But I mean, we're all <laughs> not getting what we deserve and yeah. being used by the game department. I mean, well, so the game and fish department, it, it, it seems like a logical solution would be to just, okay, we're not going to help pay to mend your fences even though we reintroduce these elk and you know i'm fine with reintroduction um or introduction i i assume that there were elk there at some point in time but um i don't know the history of the gila as far as the the elk's uh, existence there and their role on the landscape but it seems like if they're not going to help you fix fences and they're not going to help you uh with water whether that's you know supplying irrigation or whatever 
or like you said, you're another guy in the in the lawsuits hauled over a million gallons of water in. If they're not helping you with these things and they're not reimbursing you, then okay, a couple elk permits would go a long way in helping cover some of that cost because those permits can go for I don't know fifteen thousand dollars in that area. Exactly. Yeah, and and that's the thing is we're not. Uh, uh, why should I guess their attitude is why should we pay these people when we can just steal their feed and water? That seems to be the game department's attitude. And certain, I said certain people get get the elk permits every year in the same areas that we're in, and it, it makes no sense. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'd like to possibly visit with someone who does get permits. Why? Like, why are why are they issuing permits to certain people and not to other people? Uh, doesn't make any sense to me. Right. And you've said that you've had as many as 500 elk on the place at one time. That's right. The last summer, it was just crazy because I couldn't run them off. They, <laughs> it was only water in miles and they kept coming on during the day. And I'd, I'd run two or 300 head off and here'd come another two, 300 head. It was just crazy trying to drive them off. And of course you couldn't because then in the evening came in, I don't know how many head were there at night. I, <laughs> I was worn out during the day trying to run them off. And they, like I said, they ate all the feed on the place. Didn't mm-hmm. leave anything. So what is the current status of the, the court case? Where well, they were just filed, recently filed, and we had eight, eight plaintiffs. There was uh-huh. 10, actually, and two of them said they wanted elk on their property and, and kind of they weren't, I don't know, couldn't. So anyway, they, they dropped out. But we have three more wanting to get on there as of last night, and I have more contacts in the next day or two possibly to get more people on the, on the lawsuit. And most of these people would just prefer the elk just be not on the property at all. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the other solution is the game department used to come in and fence the properties. And now they're, they're bringing the fence wire to you and telling you to fence it. And then they turn it over to the IRS and then they ask for an easement to go through your property for eternity. And I, I really don't want my place fenced with <laughs> eight, 10 foot fence and look like I'm in a prison either. Right. Uh, the, the real, the real thing is the game department needs to get a handle on what they're doing and, and the Forest Service does too, and they need to c- control the numbers and let people hunt them and, and reimburse us for the, for our losses, but they're not doing that. Yeah, it sounds like, it's, I mean, certainly where you're at, that the population's just out of control, and it is such a sought-after tag, they don't give that many uh, away, you know, there's not that many tags available, um, so I don't know, it seems like either more tags or they need to come in and, and help you guys out with culling or, but that's stupid because hunters are more than happy to do that. Right. Um, so, and, um, I just, uh, I just don't understand why they're not controlling the herd. And, uh, like I said, the river goes through my property. It goes through all these people's property that are in the lawsuits. And of course, elk need water. They come in at night and and then, of course, when it's green, like right now, the, the farm, and they come in to eat the feed. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it brings up an interesting conversation because where do you, where do you, where's the balance between private property rights and, you know, the state's right to, to have these elk on the landscape? Where's the balance between take, doing right by the elk and, and also not neglecting private property rights? So. I don't know what the solution is, to be frank, but I think it's a conversation worth having, and uh, it's certainly well, important. Know, I went to school with a former director, Larry Bell, and he was the director of the state uh, game department. And I told him, I says, you know, I'll raise elk if that's what you guys will, will pay us to do. Uh, you know, reimburse us or give us enough permits to do that. I'll just take the cows off. 
and they were not they're not willing to do that they like i said i think they figure if why should we pay somebody for the use of their property if we can just steal it now if i was a rancher and put cattle on somebody's property i guarantee you i'd be paying some money because they'd take me to court and they'd win but i guess the game department just thinks they can do whatever they want yeah hopefully we'll get it corrected well and to be fair it's your land and you have to have the ability to make a profit on your property if you've got taxes to pay i mean it, having that much acreage isn't free so i don't know that's uh that's something yeah, else it to consider from, just from doing what we want to do with our own property and it's taking i mean it's a takings case also but by them allowing the elk to come onto our property they're keeping us from doing what we want to do with our property also mm -hmm. like i said i don't know the answer but uh i certainly feel for your situation and I'm a passionate elk hunter. I come. I actually drew a tag in northern New Mexico this year, um, which I've drawn four tags now in New Mexico in like the last six or seven years. I heard some of the residents can don't even get those odds. So, uh, well, I'm glad you're you're one of the ones that get them. Yeah, I know that some people have a hard time getting them, just yeah. like owners. But uh, and I don't want to get into that. But I but I certainly think that if we had more hunters, and, uh, I don't think we'd have we'd have less problems than what we do. It doesn't cost the game department a nickel to give us the landowner tags. Right. They're going to issue the tags to somebody anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe they're, are they hung up on wanting more of it to occur on the forest and the Gila? Uh, and like, I, I don't know what, why are they trying to protect the herd that seems so like it's overpopulated? Like, why would 10 landowners be joining together saying, hey, we've got a serious problem here if there's not a problem? Um, and, you know, you look at in the spring, those elk are starving, too. And they, they're, every once in a while, you'll see something that look good. But a lot of times, the, they're underfed, too. I mean, if you get too many animals, you're not going to have the feed for them. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hopefully someday I'll get to hunt the Gila. If you, if, if you do end up winning this case, let me know about those tags. And I'm sure you can cut me a good deal on one. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Gino. Hey, hope, hope that the... Uh, well, I'll follow along. I'm sure it'll be in the news as this thing progresses because it's certainly worth following. Um, so thanks for your time. Okay. Appreciate it. Good All right. Luck. All right. There he goes. I actually said third generation. Sounds like he's like a fourth generation uh, rancher there in Southwest New Mexico. Zeno Keeney. Um, and, you know, that's just the perspective of the, the landowner. I've emailed New Mexico Game and Fish, have not heard anything back uh, from them. I'd love to get their their reasoning behind the way that they are handling that situation. Um, and I did, uh, I did do some research off the air. Elk were wiped out of New Mexico completely statewide by the early uh, 1900s, like 1905. Um, as people were moving West, they were shooting these elk for multiple reasons, you know, competing with cattle and then for food, you know, just to, to get by. Uh, but the reintroduction process started years later, and I think it was 1953 that they reintroduced elk into the Gila, and they brought down, uh, like Zeno said, they brought down some animals from Wyoming, um, Yellowstone area, and released them onto the landscape there. So there's the historical backstory for you regarding this topic, uh, one that, like I said, really interesting. And uh, hopefully New Mexico Game and Fish will get back with us so we can hear their side of the story. That segment brought to you by Mossberg Firearms and the Patriot lineup. They've got something for every shooter and for every occasion 
in the Patriot lineup. Uh, 22-250, I believe, the smallest caliber, all the way up to 375 Ruger. They've got synthetic stocks. They've got walnut stocks, whatever you want. They've got Vortex scoped combos if you want a uh, an optic that comes with the uh, the rifle. They've got it all. You can find the Patriot at Mossberg.com. Up next, we check in with Brian Barney of Eastman's Elevated. It's all things elk coming at you on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Sunday Saint Fooling your neighbors That's what you think Reading the good book Singing the hymn Come Monday morning And it's back to a life of sin there's something nostalgic about the old-timey general store, and that's exactly what you're going to find in downtown Goldwaith, Texas, at the Mills County General Store. They're licensed FFL with rifle, pistols, and shotguns, ammo, gun accessories, hunting accessories, deer corn, and attractants, sporting goods. They've got a wide array of knives to choose from, plus insulated apparel for both work and camo for hunting season fishing supplies they've got foods like anchor tea grass-fed beef dublin sodas gourmet sauces and a whole lot more also ace hardware from wall to wall they have it all check it out the mills county general store right there in goldweight texas Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices, so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at threecurl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com. Hi, this is Fred Eichler with Easton Bowhunting and Predator Nation. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. September in the Rockies, the bull elk bugles ring. Their sounds fill the canyons just like they're trying to sing. Fall winds blowing winter and the snow's falling deep. It's Ridgefire, the name of that one, from Dave Watson, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith, riding shotgun with you, as always. Thanks for dropping by, as we're about to talk some scouting and archery elk hunting techniques with Brian Barney, host of the Eastman's Elevated Podcast. But before we do that, this segment is proudly brought to you by First Light and the new Obsidian Foundry Pants. That's what I'll be wearing in the Elkwoods this fall. I'm really excited about the vented, well, let's just say those areas where you tend to get a little hot and bothered. Yeah, swamp ass, you know what I'm talking about. They've got vents there, and they've also got knee pads. So if you are in that situation where you're having to crawl in order to stick an arrow in a big bull, um, or maybe a a cow, whatever your tag's good for, the Obsidian Foundry has you covered. You can find it at firstlight.com. And with that being said, let's bring him on right now. Brian Barney of Eastman's Elevated. Thanks for dropping by, man. Yeah, thanks so much, man. It's good to connect with you, Cable. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of uh, of being on your podcast, Eastman's Elevated. And so uh, it's nice to have you on our show as um, you can provide some insight on things us uh, Southerners like to dabble in, but maybe don't have the uh, experience or expertise based off, you know, logistically, um, 
Now, I love to go hunting out west, but I'm lucky to get a tag, you know, um, and or private land hunts are quite expensive. So I'm always keeping my fingers crossed. I drew a tag in New Mexico this year, though. So I drew uh, the first archery season, September 1st, through I believe the 14th. Uh, oh, so, congratulations. That's a good one in New Mexico. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've killed two bulls on public land with my bow in New Mexico. Um, and uh, it's it's probably my second favorite state to hunt. And just based off its proximity to Texas, you know, it's it's uh, just a day's drive as compared to like Montana or Idaho or Wyoming. Uh, where are you based out of? Yeah, so I'm based out of Montana. So I'm just south of Bozeman in a small little community uh, called Ennis, Montana. And so it's a mecca for elk. It's the reason why I moved here 20 plus years ago was for the Western opportunity. And you're right, like being able to live in the West and then, you know, chase these elk during all these different seasons and scouting, you, you get to know the species that you're hunting really well. And so, yeah, happy to help and provide any insight I can. Well, I certainly appreciate it. Let me ask you this, though. Um, to start off with, have you ever been to Texas? Have you hunted in my neck of the woods before? Gosh, Texas is one of the states I still have to check off my list. So I've been to about every Western state. I was going to go to Texas last year and uh, oh. go hunt Audad. I had an invite to go down there to a ranch in Texas where they didn't do much Audad hunting on it. And uh, gosh, it was like, some crazy amount of acres, 300,000 acres or something like that. And so I was going to go chase those Audad with my bow down there. And boy, it just got screwed up with COVID and what was important mm. in family and things of that nature. And so we kind of both called off the trip and then this year it fell through. So I haven't made it to Texas yet, but I really want to. Yeah. Odd out or cool. That's, um, we call it like the, the poor man's sheep hunting. Um, I mean, you can go for an, sometimes the outfitted hunts are still like five grand, but like you said, you had an invite. I've taken a couple, not with a bow, um, but they are cool animals and you just picture the most inhospitable part of Texas. That's where you're going to find the Audad. Uh, as far as Western stuff, you just took a nice bear, by the way. I saw on your Instagram, beautiful color phase, and that was a spot and stock hunt. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, um, up here in Montana, we have to spot and stock them. In fact, they just passed a rule where we can hunt them with hounds in future. But yeah, yeah I really get into spot and stocking these bears in the spring, and and I love hunting them with my bow and arrow. And so it's like entry level to dangerous game. Like uh, grizzly bears, like I want to do it once in my life, but it's a touch out of my tax bracket when they're twenty k right. or thirty k for a hunt. But these black bears, I get to do it every year for a resident thirty dollar tag, non resident tag is 400 but there's all this public land and all these mountain ranges out here and in the springtime uh, their numbers are condensed to a certain elevation so they're following the green wave or the snow melt as the green grass grows up the mountain and so yeah you just hike around a bunch you grab a bunch of different vantage points there's hardly any hunting pressure you have it to yourself and you got a black bear tag in your pocket and so black bears you know, I, I like to describe and describe them as 99% boredom and 1% thrilling excitement. And that 1% keeps you coming back. So mm -hmm. I spent 20 plus days this season and I think I've glassed up like, I think I, my bear counts 
um, 18 or 19 bears, five grizzlies. And so I've seen quite a few, but it's catching the right bear in the right spot. And mm. finally, two nights ago, I caught this giant red color phase uh, black bear. And he was trying to breed or at least quartering this jet black sow, able to make some solid moves on him, found myself in bow range and then one perfect arrow and it was said and done. But shooting a black bear is not like shooting an ungulate. You shoot a black bear and I always think, oh, what did I just do? You know, they, right. they roar like a lion and they go from zero to a hundred, you know, here's this bear that's just feeding in this grass slope. And then you hit him with an arrow and all chaos breaks loose. And I've actually had two of them charge me that I've hit with arrows, just being in cro close proximity when that happens. But uh, thankfully two nights ago, hit him with a perfect arrow. He spun and roared and then ran down in the timber down in there and man, he didn't make it a hundred yards and he was done down in there. So yeah, just super cool to be able to, to hunt those things in the spring and stretch the legs. How far was the shot? So it's a little bit farther than I wanted. Usually bears, I like to get like inside 50 or inside 40, their vitals are a third the size of a whitetail and you don't want to have one wounded. So, you know, I practice at extended ranges and feel really comfortable. I was able to make it to 54 on this bear. Uh, mm. So he had uh, this black sow and then there was nothing between us, but a few blades of grass. Like there, I was totally out of cover. Uh, so I had to just hold put and wait for my shot and then really sit on my shot. And yeah, just put it on them. It was a, a perfect elevation, great quartering away shot came out the offside shoulder just like it should but yeah a, a little bit farther i like to be really precise with those shots on bears but it, it was inside my comfortable range where i knew i could make it would you rather have a perfectly broadside shot with a bow or slightly quartering away oh man angles are good in archery like i yeah. love a bride's broadside shot but i love angles i like shooting downhill on things i like that quartering away shot you know the the only deal is is like a quartering away uh, there isn't as much room for error. You know, you got to be more precise with that arrow to make sure you hit that angle to where a broadside, you know, like on a deer, you have an eight inch circle to hit or on an elk, you've got a 12 inch circle to hit. When they're quartering away, it skews that circle to where you can't miss much left or right. But if I have my choice, I'm going to take a slightly quartering away because that angle is so good for that arrow. It does so much damage going through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about yeah. you? Oh, yeah, I like quartering away. I yeah. actually, uh, and I've told this story before, but I shot this elk at 62, I think it was 62 yards. I had all time, all day to range it. It was the last night of the hunt. It was a little five by five. And, um, man, I just missed by, I don't know, a couple inches. I, I saw the arrow hit his shoulder and I thought I smoked him. And then when he turned and ran, uh, the outfitters looking at me, he's like, give me a thumbs up. And I was like, thumbs down, dude. Like there's way too much arrow sticking out of that shoulder. And so now I, I was telling you off there, I'm, I'm going to take my bow to South Africa and try to get a sable and maybe a water buck, uh, in July. And so um, I ordered a heavier, uh, poundage bow for, I was shooting 60, I think it was like 63 pounds. Um, maybe it was maxed out at 65. I can't remember. Uh, but now I'm going to move up to like 72, get a 70 pound bow and get a heavier arrow set up. So if I ever do hit that front shoulder again, hopefully I can get the penetration to just punch through it. Uh, but at 62 yards, I don't know, it still might be, you know, it might be fool's gold, but um, certainly going to get a, a heavier setup. I don't know. What do you shoot? 
Yeah, that definitely helps. Like the the laws of momentum. And that was a broadside shot, by the way. So was it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All the laws of momentum energy favor a heavier arrow. The heavier poundage is going to help. So all that's uh, you know on your side. You know, as as far as my bow hunting, like I shoot a twenty six and a half inch draw length. Like I'm five seven, uh, mm. and, and so I shoot this twenty six and a half inch draw length, which is really short. And then you know I shoot a heavier arrow. My arrows come in at about four. 150 grains but man cable what i've found is those elk are so extremely tough that it's an accuracy game it's like if i hit that shoulder i don't get through that shoulder whether i'm shooting a 550 grain arrow or whether i'm shooting a 400 grain arrow you know it's just like i just don't have enough energy now if i hit the right spot in the shoulder yes or like that bear the other night the the arrow exited out the far shoulder and you definitely want to stick all that in your favor but for me i would never intentionally shoot one with an arrow in the shoulder like it was just you know i just missed from 62 yards you probably probably a slam dunk for you for me that was that was the farthest shot i've ever taken on on an animal with a bow Um, whereas with a rifle i aim for the front shoulder i'm like oh Mm -hmm. i'll just break that thank you very much down right there that's that's church so totally i I try to just a lot more than i do I just try to aim like four inches off that shoulder and give myself yeah. a little buffer or room for air. Cause I'm the same way. If I hit that shoulder, I do not get through. And I've hit a bowl in the shoulder before and he goes back to rutting his cows and goes back to being an elk, you oh, know, yeah. like it doesn't yeah. even phase him, doesn't hurt him at all, but they've got, yeah. there's such a tough animal that elk have this 12 inch vital. And so you think you have more room for air, but you know, you have to hit an elk perfect, or you probably got a 5% chance of getting them. You have to hit lungs, heart, or liver, or they just don't die, you yeah. know, unless you hit an artery or you get lucky or get a good blood trail or a finish up shot. But I've just learned that elk are so extremely tough that it has to be a precise shot. And I can't be anywhere close to the shoulder because I just can't get through it. But everybody's different. Some of these longer draw lengths, more weight, like it's all good for momentum energy. So it's all going to help for these thicker bodied animals. But to me, it's all about putting them in the center Mm -hmm. and they die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The outfitter was like, well, don't worry. We'll shoot them during rifle season and we'll pull the broadhead out. It's no big deal. Seen it a (laughs) hundred times, but that didn't make me feel any better. You know, I'm like, ah, I get to go elk hunting one week a year and here's the last day and I screwed it up. So now I just, and then you just lick your wounds for, for a whole year when you're a Southerner, you know, it's just with kids and in life. uh, I have one week that my wife's like, all right, you can, you know, couple that with africa and all the other crap it's uh it's a lot to say oh i'm gonna go elk hunting twice this for a week each time <laughs> um i did elk hunt in montana though um three years ago it was before covid with uh ty Stubblefield, and um it was awesome man we saw a ton of elk he actually got one there was three of us that was the only one we got but it was a great trip and then uh, and then i black bear hunted in montana one time spot and stock and I flew into Kalispell, man, we saw more grizzlies than we did black bear. It was, uh, eye-opening. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's nerve wracking, uh, hunting in grizzly country, isn't it? Like yeah. just seeing those things and, and, you know, there, there's no need for any Sasquatch out there. There's real monsters in the mountains. Those grizzly bears are so powerful and so big and you just catch one with the wrong attitude, but yeah, it tends to, you got to have your head on a swivel when you're hunting in grizzly bear country. Yeah. Yeah, we we saw some black bears, but a lot of them were um, sows with cubs or mm-hmm. just you know immature. And we never actually, and I think we hunted. It was a short trip. I think we hunted three and a half days. 
And um, we never even really made a stock on anything. I mean, we just spent a bunch of time on the glass, looked at some grizzlies and a few black bears and beautiful country, though. I'd love to do it again. Um, but uh, as far as, let's see, what I want to talk about today, I think we, you know what, I think we'll just work in a quick break here and we'll come back and, and talk about actually scouting, which mm-hmm. is what the, uh, the meat of the conversation is going to be today. So you're cool to stick around? You bet. Perfect. And that segment was brought to you by Vortex Optics and the new Venom 5 to 25 by 56 rifle scope. It's the long range shooter's dream at a price point that isn't going to break the bank. Plus, you get the VIP, um, no questions asked, lifetime transferable warranty, the best in the business. You can find the Venom at vortexoptics.com. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Our night vision and thermal imaging has been helping hunters light up the night for over a decade now. I've been with them for quite some time. Back in the early days, thermal optics were pretty expensive. You might not realize it, though. The average guy can get into a thermal rifle scope these days very affordably. I've got the Thermion XP50. Absolutely love that scope. It's got a diverse color palette, lots of options to choose from, whether you want white hot, uh, black hot, red hot, you name it. There's tons of options, literally. It's got internal recording as well, and it's got internal and external battery options. So you can hunt all night without having to worry about running out of batteries. You can find the Thermion XP50, as well as their entire lineup of thermal and night vision optics right there at PulsarNV.com. Spawn is right around the corner. Your reels have been re-spooled, and the tackle box is ready to roll. But the question is, can your truck handle another season of pulling your boat in and out of the water every weekend? Call David Boone at Third Coast Diesels. He'll make sure your truck is not what sinks your next fishing trip. Offering a widespread array of diesel parts and services, call 214-326-1176 or visit thirdcoastdiesels.com today. Hey guys, this is Jason Christian. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. So slow Go out give Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back to SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. That's the music of the damn quails. Midnight Swagger, uh, thanks to Mossberg Firearms, our presenting sponsor. Thanks to you guys for being here as we are still talking all things elk with Brian Barney of Eastman's Elevated. But before we jump back into that conversation, this segment is proudly brought to you by Big and J Whitetail Attractants. I told you guys last week that... My kids fight over putting it out. I actually catch Henry eating it sometimes. It smells great. Well, from what I understand anyway, I can only smell about 50% because I got that vid back in November. But here's the thing. Whitetails can't get COVID-19. So they can smell it a mile away. They come a-running big bucks. Literally will die for it. I know because I shot one with his snoot buried in a pile of to die for last uh, November. You can find their entire lineup of attractants at bigandj.com. All right. With that being said, uh, Brian Barney, thanks for sticking around, man. Certainly appreciate it. 
Oh man, I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, anytime we're talking elk, uh, gets me fired up. They're about the most thrilling animal to hunt and especially with the bow and arrow and how vocal they are. So yeah, man, no problem. Which we, we've already talked a little bit about a little bear hunting. Um, but I know you also are passionate about those big Western muleys. I've seen some, some nice ones on your page. So be honest, do you like hunting mule deer or elk better? Oh, I mean, if you ask me during the heart of September, I'm an elk hunter. If you ask me any other time of the year, I'm a muley hunter. Okay. Uh, I, I just love, uh, you know, like, like mule deer, the places they can live and the places they take me that high country above tree line, you know, it's like the, you know, you talked about the common man sheep hunt, but these mule deer, they live above 10,000, 11,000, above 13,000 in Colorado. So they live in, in super extreme rugged country, you know, and hunt them from there all the way to the desert floor. And then the species itself, like, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest antlered, you know, deer species and grow racks of over 200 inches and 30 to 35 inches wide. Uh, and, and their instincts are so keen, like they're so tough to get close to. And it's a different hunt than an elk hunt. It's really methodical and planned out. And these, uh, you, you know, you really plan out your approach and you may take an hour to go 10 feet to get close. And so it's really, uh, uh, these slow methodical plays on these giant mule deer. So yeah, that that's what fuels my fire, but man, it, it's really tough for me to choose. I think elk hunting is some of the most thrilling hunting you can do with a bow and arrow. And during the rut, September, October, you won't catch me chasing any mule deer. It is all elk. You know, mm-hmm. I, uh, I hunt at least a couple different States for elk every year in multiple different places from, you know, the mountains to the, to the breaks, to the prairies, basically anywhere they'll give me an archery tag. I've only taken, I think I've taken two mule deer, one in West Texas and one in New Mexico. And the one in New Mexico was, it's a, it's a really pathetic little three by, I'm looking at him right now. So three by three, big body deer, but just didn't have a lot going on. That is a trophy to me though. I was, it was, uh, the last day of an abbreviated hunt. We were actually, there was three of us with mule deer tags that drew. And then, uh, the church group might. My dad's been going on this backpacking trip with his buddies for, oh gosh, 30 years. And once you're 21, they invite you. None of these guys were really hunting. They were just fly fishing and stuff like that. And then the kids start going once you're 21. I'm like, look at all these grouse. We should be bringing shotguns. And then we're like, wait a second. Look at all these elk. So a few years later, we're putting in for tags. And then, oh, wait, we could put in for mule deer here. Anyway, there was a whiteout up there. We were staying on... Um, like the Wheeler Peak area, the highest point in New Mexico. And it, it was like, they, a lot of these guys are in their 60s, some in their 70s. We were like, we got to get the hell out of here for their safety's sake. So short, shortened hunt. And then on the way out, I shot this mule deer in a meadow I had dropped a pin on. Being like, there's got to be deer in here. And we uh, it worked out perfectly because a lot of those older guys were riding horses out. And it was like, hey, hey, bring the horses over here. We shot a, a mule deer. Get this thing off the mountain for us. But yes, I crawled within 60 yards, shot it with a muzzleloader. Uh, my buddy filmed it. Cool, memorable experience. Uh, but, you know, I've hunted other times in New Mexico, drawn a tag and hunted for a week and like seen like two bucks. So they are, uh, they're an elusive critter and they don't give themselves up like elk. You can hear an elk bugle. So mm-hmm. boom. Okay. Now let's go get him. Fun animal to hunt for sure. And someday I'm going to get a big one, but um as far as elk goes, let's talk digital scouting. That's what a lot of Southerners have to rely on. Like I said, logistically, it's a luxury if you have a few days to 
I don't know, go to Montana or Colorado or New Mexico or whatever and scout. So a lot of us rely on Google Earth. Um, certainly Onyx is a big part of that. Uh, what are the geographic features that you're looking for when you start out saying, okay, I drew a tag in this unit. Now I've got to dial in where I'm going to hunt and why. Yeah. Scouting for elk. It's tough because where you scout for elk in the summer, you know, is, you know, you can see a big bull in the summer and that's not where he's going to be when it comes September in the rut. And so, yeah, we do a lot of our work off e-scouting. And so once I know I've drawn a unit, mm -hmm. it's about breaking down that unit to, to points of interest. And so elk are nomadic. So the first thing is to understand elk and how they move through the mountains. The elk don't just live in one drainage or one basin or one meadow. They've got a network of these places that go on for 20 miles in the backcountry where they, they move around to different meadows and they're designed this way so they don't eat themselves out of a food source. So they're nomadic by nature and so they travel through. So you can have the best elk spot in the world, but if you're three days late to get in there or you're three days early, there won't be an elk in that drainage, you know, but it can be really good elk country. So like when I when I'm looking for places to scout or I'm breaking down a mountain range. Let's keep it, uh, let's keep it early season archery. Just absolutely. Uh, okay. Yep. So so early season archery. So elk need water every single day. So they can't be higher than the water sources. But during um this September season for hunting elk, the elk are gonna be they're gonna be as high as they can get on the mountain and get water and get food. You know, usually this is about a thousand to two thousand feet off the peaks in and through there. So I'm looking at that type of country. And then what I'm looking for, you know, I look for a lot of feeding features uh, and feeding features for elk are big meadows, big south facers. Uh, they like bottoms. And then I'm I'm looking at how I can see the country and how I can make a hunt into it. And when I'm marking these, you know, I'm also paying attention to trailheads and I go on a map when I first draw a unit and I draw, I highlight a, a mile around each road that I, mm -hmm. that I will not hunt this country, you know, and there's, they right. can be elk in this country. It's just, that's where there's going to be a lot of pressure and, and most likely not where a lot of elk are going to hang out. And I also draw a two mile circle around any trailheads. This is where everybody's going to park, where everybody's going to hike from. And so I want to get two miles out of this area before I ever begin hunting. And then, you know, I like to hunt up big drainages uh, where I can glass the far side, where I can listen. And it's really important to be at the right places at the right time. Elk are just only active in that morning for an hour or two, in that evening for an hour or two, and then during the night. And so um, when I'm scouting, I'm looking for these features that usually run six to 8,000 feet. Uh, elk are going to bed in like the, the north facing timber and they love to bed on benches. So when you look at the topography, if you can find a flat bench in north side timber at 65, 77,000 feet right in there, like that's a great bedding location. And then I try to link that up with, you know, a meadow feature that I think they may be feeding or a bottom or mm -hmm. something of that nature. So I start breaking down country and then I start linking this country together. I start saying, okay, I can walk this ridge and I can walk this drainage. And then if I don't find anything, I can hunt the next drainage over and hunt out. And really elk season is about covering country and being nomadic like the elk. Like it never works to stick a base camp in somewhere and hunt for one spot for 10 days. It's just, I've never been able to keep into elk for 10 days. 
I have to move like them. Like they may move through country and I get three days of good hunting and then they disappear and I got to find where they headed the next drainage over and I'll just move my camp over there. And so you can hunt with a base camp, but you got to be mobile. You got to be willing to move that camp. And when you go someplace and don't find elk, then it's just checking that off the list, going into the next drainage and going up there and looking for elk. So e-scouting, I'm marking a bunch of places, not just one plan, but Mm -hmm. you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, all the way down the list. So uh, when I get frazzled or I can't find elk, I always have a place to go or a place to go hunt. It's kind of how I attack my my elk scouting. Okay. And you mentioned 7,500 feet. That's just uh, probably relevant to where you're hunting. Like if the timberline is at uh, 11,000 feet, like some of the places I've hunted in New Mexico and Colorado, then you're going to be dropping down to say 9,500 feet to start looking for them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. It it is dependent on the mountain ranges. They can't live on the rock tops. Uh, So usually it's where that feed and where that water begins. And early in September, they're definitely going to be higher up on the mountain as it starts to get later in September and earlier in October. Uh, that meadow grass starts to burn off and they start to lose that food source. And it seems like they will come a little bit lower down on the mountain. But yeah, for early September, I I like to look about, you know, like you say, a thousand feet off the peaks or where that timber really starts, Mm -hmm. uh, where the water really starts and where the the meadow grass is. And usually it's towards the the top third of the mountain up there. But as it gets later, they can drop down in elevation. And, you know, elk are... um, when you find elk at an elevation, it, it's telling you something. Every time you find elk or you find sign somewhere, it's really paying attention to that sign. And so, you know, where I find elk in the mountains, if I'm finding them at 8,500 feet, I really like to transpose that elevation to different parts of the units and try to look for elk features that are at that similar elevation, like at that time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, what about, and I think this is, something that my, this is something my, my elk hunting buddy and I always struggle with. And we always end up doing the same thing because just like the elk need water, we need water. And we have a place in in a unit when we're lucky to draw it, that always has elk. It's one of those meadows that basically works its way down an entire mountain face meadow system. And you, you're going to find elk there. Every time I shot a bull on, you mentioned those benches or we call them saddles, but those North facing, um, basically flat spots on the side of the mountain where the elk like to bed in those areas where it's flatter. Um, and I shot an elk there in 2015 on September 7th. And then I shot another one there on September 7th in 2018. But where do you want to set your camp up? Because we know thermals change. They're going to go down in the morning, come up in the afternoons. So do you want to be hunting up to the elk in the morning or do you want to be hunting down on them? Cause we actually end up hunting down on them. And there's times when we're like, God, this is so dumb, but this is where the water is for us. So this is where we set up our camp uh, as opposed to just camping right in the middle of where we think the elk are going to be. What are your thoughts on that? And it's really cool that spot that you're talking about where you find those elk consistently. And it sounds like you find them consistent in early September. And once you get the timing on a spot, it's like you write that down in your journal and it may be give or take a few days when it's good in there, but around that same time, it will be good in that area. So it's, it's really cool that you, that you have that dialed in, in that spot, but yeah, uh, as, as far as these elk and where you camp, like every, every way you hunt elk is different. And so I try not to 
camp where they're going to be getting my wins. And so like, you're trying to factor all this in as you're camping and where you're going to be camping at. And, and the deal is, is a lot of guys have to camp by water where I can pack my water and live higher on the mountain and kind of travel with the elk and then fill my water as I go, where a lot of guys hunt with water and they fill a 32 ounce Nalgene and that's all they have for the day. So if they make it out of range of water, they can't stay there for the night. So I tend to take a little bit different approach, but I definitely don't be want to be where they come down to feed at night. So they, they have to feed this meadow grass. It's critical for mm -hmm their survival is to come out of this thick timber and feed this meadow grass, feed the beetle kills, feed the burns. This is where the, the most nutritious grass grows. So knowing that about elk, every single night, they're going to be coming into these meadows and they're going to spend the entire night in these meadows. And usually they bugle harder at night than they ever do in the morning or an evening. Now, a lot of times you're catching the tail end of this rut fest or the beginning end of this rut fest. But so it's important like not to camp down in the meadows where they're going to come down into and i made this mistake before where you know the elk make it down to me and then they're around and they catch my wind and blow out of there because that's where they're feeding and so mm -hmm. like i like to get out of the meadow grass and i like to get tucked in the timber a bit and then i just like to think about those thermals like we know the thermals as the air cools down it's going to drop down in and so i'm paying attention and as these thermals drop they're going to drop down canyons and down creek bottoms and kind of flow down through country so you can almost visualize how it's going to go down and if there's going to be elk in that downwind spot at night i won't camp there i'd rather hike over the ridge and hike another half a mile to put myself in the next drainage over so I'm keeping my wind over there and then I can hunt into the elk. And it, as far as hunting down or hunting up on them, man, it just all depends like where you're starting from. So I hate chasing elk, but you spend most of your time chasing elk. Right. <laughs> they love right. to walk uphill and they can go forever, you know, and, and it's re usually really tough to get in front of them, you know? And so I'd love to be in front of them, but as they tend to move through the mountains, a lot of times they're moving with the wind coming at their face, you know? And so if you're in front of them, they're going to wind you. So you're forced to take up tail behind them. And it's one of the reasons why elk hunting is so exciting. So, you know, mule deer, you can sit back and you can make this plan and I'm going to get to this rock and then I'm going to sneak down to this tree and then I'm going to shoot this buck when he gets out of his bed. Elk hunting is not that way. Like elk right. hunting, you see a bull with a bunch of cows and it's like, okay, I'm going to make my way over there. And then you have to adapt to the situation that you're given. You have to adapt to the, what the winds are doing over there. You have to adapt to the way these elk are moving through country. And you really got to just, um, it's like being a fighter. You just got to get in a fight. You just got to go over there, go get into the elk and then let your instincts take over and try to make really good decisions. And you have to make a hundred right decisions to arrow a bull and do it perfectly. But, but that's the trick, you know? And so you're always just going over and just seeing what you can make happen. And then you, you don't want to stock to failure and blow those things out. You want to take what they give you. And if a cow's looking in your direction, I mean, I've had to freeze for an hour just mm -hmm. until that cow forgets about me and moves off. And, and then I may come over the ridge and maybe I can't get in range of the bull, but I'm in range of all the cows. Well, now I'm just going to wait and I'm going to see if that bull is going to come around and check those cows. So it's really important to just take what they'll give you and, and kind of adapt to the situation, let your instincts take over. And so like to answer your question, I'm always trying to camp out of the elk or out of where I think the elk are and then hunt my way into them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about, and I'm asking this because the first private land elk hunt I ever went on, 
was an eye-opening experience for me because coming from a background of chasing them on public land and sometimes successfully and sometimes quite, um, you know, it was quite humbling, but this hunt I went on in Colorado, the hunt ended at like 9am and it didn't start again until 435. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what are we doing here? I'm like the elk are bedded in there. Let's go kill them. And he's like, Oh no, no, we don't, we don't, we don't push the elk here because then we push them back onto public land, but on public land, I don't give a crap. I hear a bugle. I'm going there. And if I have to kill him in his bed, that's where I'm going. I don't, I mean, and this might just be foolhardy, but if the wind's right, and if he's talking to you and the, the two bulls that I've killed in New Mexico, both were midday, you know, 10, 11, it wasn't an early morning. It wasn't a, an afternoon, late afternoon thing. It was midday, found the right one that wanted to, to tango. Um, what are your thoughts on going into their bedding areas on public land? Yeah, so there, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And so everybody has the their tactics that they use and the way they hunt elk. And so uh, the way I hunt elk is I, is I actually don't, I don't bugle at all. I, uh-huh. I uh, target those herd bulls and the herd bulls are going to be six, seven, eight years old. Uh, they've heard a lot of calls and there's more elk that get killed off calls than any other method. But also the, these elk, they're privy to it. Like they hear bugles and they know to go the other way. They know to gather up their cows and exit out of there. They know a hunter is hunting them. And so for me, I try to keep the element a surprise. And so I listen to the bugles and know where those elk are at and then try to pres- position myself where I can make a play at them. So everybody's different. And now like in your case where you got a bull bugling and he's bugling middle of the day, if he's going to continue to talk to you, you're going to continue to hunt him. And I continue mm-hmm. to do the same thing it's the majority of time you know this rutting activity gets over at eight nine in the morning and they go silent move in the timber and once they bed down with 30 cows in the timber they're really tough to sneak up on and it's low percentage you end up busting them a lot you know and blowing them out of there and so for me i play more of a patient game and i like to hunt them in their feeding features in those meadows where i can keep track of them and so yeah i i focus my energy morning mornings and evenings in middle of the day I take it easy. Now, if I have a bull bedded and I can see his exact position, well, then I can make a plan and stock him. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if I don't, I usually tend to wait, but you know, there's no, there's no right and wrong way. Like, uh, 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 thinking outside outside the box is rewarded in elk hunting. So to be able to hunt them in their beds and be successful at it, it's a great tactic to have in your toolbox, but I don't tend to do it too much. I like to hunt them in their feeding features morning and night is kind of how I play the game on them. Well, maybe having the luxury of a trailhead within a few hours drive, you know, maybe that plays into, I certainly, I think that plays into how aggressive we are when we're chasing them. Um, just not, you know, we have the six days, seven days and that's it. And if we have one bugling, we're, you know, we're going. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. And if you got um, one bugling and one answering you, there's no reason not to hunt that bull. Like yeah. he's answering you back and forth and giving away his position where you can move in and maybe torque that bull off and get him to commit. So, man, I mean, I think you're making the right move. And if those things are rutting all day. Oh, you can. I'm not looking for affirmation. You can tell me, hey, you're being an idiot. You know, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> but also, but you're also, your goals are a little different too. Because you're, you know, I, we've called in herd bulls before um but haven't well, we've never stuck an arrow in you know giant six by six but or seven by seven so but you're targeting those specifically and not bugling you're looking for the the mature trophy where 
you know, I'm not saying the first legal bull that walks out because I'm not shooting a spike. I'm not shooting a cow. I'm the meat is a bonus. You know, it's it's the best meat, but um, I'm looking for a bull and yeah. packing a cow out. If I didn't have a freezer full of axis deer and a moose and all these other beautiful critters, if it wasn't full, then I might shoot a cow. But, you know, packing a cow out eight miles, which how far we're camping in, just doesn't appeal to me. Um, my It appeals to some people. It's not my thing. But uh, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're after those 350 inch bulls. Yeah, definitely after those older age class, but you know, I, I have the luxury of time and living out West and, and being able to spend that time chasing them around. But yeah, if I'm, if I'm hunting uh, satellite bulls, like any good six point, uh, any good five point things of that nature, like most herd bulls are going to have two or three satellites around his herd. And so mm-hmm. to move in those, those bulls aren't going to be able to bed with the herd or bed with the herd bull. He just won't put up with it. And so, you know, that's why we call them satellite bulls is they're a satellite to the herd. And so they're on the outskirts of the herd. So it's like, anytime you can locate them and get a play, like, like I'm all for it. I just don't want I don't think it's a good move to rush in and, and try to still hunt the timber when they're not bewling or not letting you know they're there right. because most of the time you end up spooking them and then just seeing them run away. But if you've got them bugling, you know where they're at and you can creep into that position. And a lot of elk hunting is like knowing when to slow down. It's, um, you know, a lot of times you're, you're moving and dang near jogging to keep up with the herd to see where they're going to end up betting to see where they're going to end up. And so you're with them, but then you got to know when to slow down and then start really taking your time with your steps. So you catch those elk before they catch you, because it's all about that element of surprise, you know, being Mm -hmm. able to, to slow down and then go, Hey, let's make a calling setup here. Let me get 50 yards in front of you. Let's make a call and see if we can get that, that bull. And and really the better that you understand elk in their habits and what they're doing and where they're heading, like the better you can call them in. I've always said, it's like not the noises you make, it's where you make the noises from. Like if you make, if you make a few cow calls from the timber that that bull already wants to go bed in, he's going to come check you out. If mm-hmm. you make a call from a saddle that those elk are headed to, he's going to come check you out. But if you're following that herd and you're half a mile behind them and you're bugling at them every five minutes, like you may get close enough to torque them off and make them mad where you're going to threaten, you know, uh, that herd of his, but for the most part, he's going to try to gather up those cows and keep moving away from you. And so like, it's just really important to look at these elk, how, like when you're hunting them and try to figure out what they're doing and try to be like one step in front of them. And that's really how you call a lot of bulls in consistently, I think. Certainly great insight there. We are going to take our last commercial break. We'll come back, pick up the conversation. That segment brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy with locations in San Antonio and Marion, just outside of New Braunfels, Texas. They offer amazing work, whether it's your first archery elk, your kiddo's first mallard, an African safari, a trout from the Texas coast. They do impeccable work. They offer quick turnaround time, and they answer the phone when I call. You can find them at gr the number 8 mounts.com we'll be right back with more on sci's lone star outdoor show whether you're headed to the lake for crappie the coast for redfish or trying to put your tag on that big gobbler this spring don't let your truck tank your next trip 
Third Coast Diesels does it all. From maintenance to repairs to full diesel rebuilds, any accessory on any truck, doesn't matter. They also do lifts, wheels, tires, hell, you name it. Third Coast Diesel does it. Call David Boone at 214-326-1176 or visit thirdcoastdiesels.com. With city life seemingly getting crazier by the minute, the thought of moving out to the country is looking more appealing than ever. And Foster Farm and Ranch has been recognized as one of the nation's top ranch brokerages the past two years. They have listings in 22 counties and counting and are truly a statewide entity. Foster represents buyers and sellers from all walks of life. Farmers, ranchers, hunters, doctors, lawyers, investors, and possibly you. You can find them on Facebook, Foster Farm and Ranch, or Instagram, at Foster Ranch Sales. Of course, fosterfarmandranch.com, the website, or call Chad at 830-776-3605. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at bobcatadvantage.com. Or see Bobcat Machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatofDallas.com today. Feels so good to have you alive. Right here beside me is where you belong. I don't care if everybody knows the way I feel until the dream of holding Great Burn Dustin bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms. I'm Cable Smith. We're still visiting with Eastman's elevated host, Brian Barney, talking all things elk hunting. We're going to continue that conversation momentarily. This segment is brought to you by Stealth Cam and the Fusion Wireless Trail Camera. Gone are those days of paying three, four, five hundred dollars for a wireless trail camera. No, you can pick one up for like $160 now. And data plans, as cheap as $5 a month. That's great news because you can keep tabs on animal activity at your property. And I mean, my dear lease is two hours away, but uh, I know what's going on because of the fusion. You can find it at stealthcam.com. All right, well, let's uh, wrap up today's elk hunting conversation with Brian, who was nice enough to stick around through the break. You talked about the importance of those north-facing saddles and benches. I mean, that's where they're going to be betting. That's where they're going to. That's where it sounds like you're going to target them to intercept them coming back into the meadow, or leaving the meadow in the morning, or you know, like I said, coming back into it in the evening. Which for spot and stock can be very tricky. Are you still using cow calls? No, so I don't. No calling I don't at all. Use no. I don't let okay. them know I'm there. Like my tactic is to shadow the herd. It's, it's to like coyote that herd and move with them. And so, like if I can see them, I can kill them. And I like to hunt open terrain. And that's whether I'm hunting the mountains or whether I'm hunting the breaks or the foothills or whatever I'm hunting. Like the more I can see, the better I can do. Now elk really like thick cover. That's where they like to bed at. That's where they disappear into. And so my methods are to try to locate that a a, a bull that I want to kill. And then I just shadow the herd and keep with them. And so I'll keep within 100, 300 yards of this herd. And I'm just moving with them as they travel country. I'm keeping eyes on them. They go over a ridge. Then I make that ridge and I, I start looking and look to pick them up again. And like right before they get to their bed zone, they'll kind of mill around and feed a little bit. And so they're all just kind of milling around and feeding in that area. And that's 
like a great time to make a play on them and try to sneak in and slip an arrow in that big old bull. Also in the evening, like, you know, I'm playing them, you know, you can almost call where these elk are going to go. So they leave a meadow and they go into the thick timber. And, and then if they don't go too high in that timber, like my best bet is that they're going to come back out in that meadow. Now, if this ties to other country and other meadows, I may think that, oh, tonight they're going to roll out to this meadow that's a little bit higher into the left. And so then I'll try to stage up in that country and stage and wait for them to kind of come out and start to feed. And then as they start to feed, it's usually in the evening where I've got that downhill thermal where it's a consistent wind. And I'll try to work my way in keeping eyes on these elk. So, you know, that that's kind of how I target them. Like I love to get in front of them, but most of the time it's like playing this chess match uh, where they're going to go and where they're going to come out at and then where they're going to be. And the longer I can play this game, like, like the more, the more opportunity I get, that bull will make a mistake. He will go check out these cows. He will separate from his cows to go run another bull off. Like if I can just keep shadowing this herd and keep this element a surprise, eventually a really good high percentage chance will, will usually present itself. I mean, this is uh, a far cry from the way that we hunt them. It's very interesting. Uh, no calling literally just a shadow just a, a fly on the wall of their reality until the herd bull screws up and i imagine and we've tried i mean like i said we've i called in a giant six by six i had shot my bull in 2015 my buddy um we he had a tag and i saw this black dot coming out of the the highest part of the the dark timber um this is probably uh, 11 5 11 8 something like that wow and i was like is that a, that's not a marmot that's an elk now give me the binos and I was like oh crap that's the herd bull and it was first week of september he didn't have a bunch of cows with them they were all going to start feeding in this meadow um it was probably 800 yards he closed we bugled he's coming okay we just make a few light cow calls and he, and he actually comes uphill to us my buddy is at full draw and the elk standing there but he can't tell which way the elk is facing because the grass in the meadow is so high. I'm like, shoot him in the chest, just shoot him in the chest. It's like 15 yards. And he, it, looking back on it now, he, he should have done it. He would have done it. But I'm kind of glad he didn't because he'd have this monster bull. And to this day, mine's, you know, I've shot two bigger <laughs> ones than him while we've been hunting together. Uh, and it would have spoiled him. He'd been like, oh, I'm, I'm ruined on elk hunting if I just shot a, it was probably a 330 inch bull. You know, it was a very nice uh, northern yeah. New Mexico bull. Um, but yeah, it was so cool to have him come in there. And, and, and since we know there's always elk in that area, we've, we've messed with the herd bull, but have never just tried that, that tactic of just being quiet and just moving through the timber until, you know, he screws up, but there's so many eyes on you, like, or so many possible eyes that could be on you with, you know, say 10 cows or more. I imagine that's, uh, like you said, just freeze for an hour, uh, it's it's got it's it's a certainly a skill that that uh takes a lot of practice there's no doubt yeah and trial absolutely. and error i mean that's the way you learn is putting yourself in those positions oh the experience is the best teacher and yeah we just you know i hunt a lot of high pressure areas that are general units where these elk get called to a bunch and they're high pressure units and so you know we just adapted our tactics to start targeting these herd bulls but the you know that being said the they kill more elk with calls than any other tactic and it's good to know this and who doesn't have, have a hoochie mama 
Right. right. Who doesn't? I'm about the only guy that doesn't. But um, I've called in a ton of bulls in my elk hunting history, a ton for buddies, a ton for myself that I've killed. One of my best bulls was a cow call. And really, these big herd bulls can be called in. It's just catching them in the right mood. It's catching mm -hmm. them when they're so fired up that they can't stand it. Or like that bull that you were talking about early in the season when they're looking for cows, you know, and then make a few sounds. He believes your cow and, you, and he comes in or bugle or whatever the case is. Um, but, but with these calls, less is more. It's like, uh, you, you don't bugle every time to get the reaction out of them. You bugle to locate this bowl. And then from there, you want to make this chest move. You don't want to keep calling to him all morning long. You want to move inside his bubble inside mm -hmm. 300 yards, 200 yards, sneak in there undetected and then start making those calls. And he's got no choice, but to catch up to come check you out and, and come get after you. So less is more. And a lot of times, like, Man, when you're calling, sometimes you don't even need to make a sound. Sometimes it's grab a limb and start scraping on a tree. He believes it's another bowl. You never made a bugle, never made a cow call, and he'll come check you out. And same thing if you've ever heard elk move through the mountains. They're rolling rocks. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they're making a lot of ruckus as they move through country. Same thing with you. If you're making a bugle, it's not making a bugle every minute. It's making a bugle. It's scraping trees. It's rolling rocks down the hill. Like all these these little details, they'll, they'll just be enough to trick that herd bull that's seven, eight years old to come check you out. Now, like like I like to to shadow them and stalk them. But some of the most thrilling hunting is getting these elk to interact back and forth with you, making a bugle in this secluded basin and getting this just growl of a, roar. you know, that is like as exciting as it gets for hunting. But, oh, yeah. you know, like spot and stock, I still get it. I get to take part in the rut. They just don't ever know I'm there. So there's nights where I hear 300 bugles and I see bulls fighting off other bulls and bulls tending cows. And I'm right in there teasing in range, can shoot a lot of those elk. And, and it's the same deal of just playing that game. You know, I'm still present during the rut, but, you know, I don't quite have the interaction interaction that like the callers do or whatever. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's like any of these things. You, you, you just learn about all the different ways and all the different tactics because, because there's more than one way to skin a cat and to kill a bull on public land. Like I had this um, guy on the podcast that was really smart that gave me these tactics of um, he would hunt with a buddy and he would actually have his buddy set up below the elk and he'd set up on the escape route and then have his buddy start calling at these elk and these elk would start gathering up their cows and going to the escape route. And then he <laughs> killed a great bull doing it. You know, so wow. he was using the high pressure against these elk. He was using these elk that know these calls and want to move out of that drainage. He was using it against him. And so, like I say, critical thinking and outside the box thinking for Western hunting. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love it so much. It's like this, this puzzle that you constantly have to try to solve and crack. And, and these, these, these animals have keen instincts, you know, a big herd oh, yeah. bull, he doesn't make many mistakes. So to be able to be there and then capitalize on a bull like that it is like a dream. And like the bull I hunted last year, I, I killed a couple different bulls last year. I killed a great big one out of the mountains and it was the first bull I killed. Uh, he went like three he's got 20 inch fronts, just a great big, heavy 50 inch spread bull. Oh, but wow. I hunted that bull for three days. 
Uh-huh. So I made a play down and got into bow range of this bull and we were frozen in time. And I had a quartering towards shot that I didn't take because again, elk, you have to be so precise and put that shot on him. And I was hoping he was going to give me a broadside. He never did. He spooked. He moved two drainages over and I just followed him just like a shadow. And then he got over two drainages, started being an elk again. I ran out of food and water, had to go resupply, came back in, but I hunted this bull for three days. And when I finally killed him, it was a rainstorm one of those days like you say where they're rutting during the day mm-hmm. and so i scooted in and i got into range of some of his cows and then i just waited and sure enough here he came and you know made a bugle right down below me and i ended up getting like this 45 yard shot on him down below me as he was coming out to check out these cows and so i just kind of keep playing the game and then eventually it comes together and 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 then also last year i killed my best bull to date in montana and hunted that bull for two days found him no good play i'm just really waiting for that all-in moment like when they go over a ridge and then they can't see me and i can hustle to that ridge and get a shot at them or Uh like i just look where to a spot where they're susceptible where i think i can get in on them And, and a lot of it's dictated by you know, again, that experience of doing it and kind of realizing when my all in moment is. And then I, you know, I don't win every time. And, you know, a lot of times you make mistakes and have to learn from them. But um, boy, if I can look for that all in moment, I know I have a high percentage play of getting a really good arrow in that bull. So that's kind of what I look for. Well, and I think no matter, uh, name the species and name your, your level of expertise with the species. If you're, if you're not learning every time you go out, then what are you really doing? I mean, yes, we're killers, right? And we want to be good at it. We want to be proficient. We want to have success. But if you're never getting humbled, I don't think it would be as fun. It wouldn't be challenging if you've perfected it. Then you're just an assassin. Um, and I think we'd all like, you know, love to think of ourselves as assassins. But reality is more times than not, it can be humbling. Um, but yeah, so that. Whether you have success or not, if you're not taking something away from each day, um, I think you're you're doing yourself a disservice. But I think most hunters do. Um, you know, um, I think there's not really anything else that I wanted to ask you uh, today. Is we're we're almost out of time. So uh, great stuff. I certainly appreciate your insight. Uh, hopefully, that has at least provided some different thought process for, for hunters out there. Hey, maybe, uh, maybe I don't need to call so much or, um, maybe I'll target this area on Google earth, uh, things to think about as you, as you make your Western plans for, uh, for this, for this fall, what States are you going to be hunting th- uh, this year? And, and one cool thing about Montana, I think it only took me one year to draw that tag. Um, when I, when I bow hunted, I just had one point and got a, um, general, I think it was a general tag. It was actually good for mule deer or elk, I believe, but, uh, the area that we were in didn't have many, many mule deer, but certainly a lot of elk. So Montana is definitely a, a place that's a little far from Texas, but a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. About 30 hours North for you. That's gotta be a long drive coming up to Montana, but we flew. Oh, did you? Good for you. Yeah, it's great country. And yeah, we offer these general season tags and general season combo tags to where we open up the state to like over 19,000 non-residents. And so these general areas, they're some of the best elk hunting in the West. Now it's tough. Now uh, success rates are going to hover around 6%. Uh, to kill a bull elk with your bow and arrow on a general unit, but there's opportunity and there's, there's opportunity 
opportunity to learn. And like you talked about the evolution of a bow hunter, that's all it is. It, it's going and getting experience and gaining that knowledge and coming into it with a better skill set. And now there's great places to hunt elk. There's great tags to draw. You know, I, they don't pull my lucky name out of the hat. I, I apply in every state out West and, 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 you know, good elk tags are tough to come by. It's really popular. And so I hunt a lot of these general season units where success rates hover from three to 6%. Yeah. And there is just awesome hunting in it. There's so much, uh, a great hunting out West to be had so many great spots that aren't even discovered yet, you know? And so Montana is a great place to do it. So I've got a Montana, general season tag and then i drew a special tag here in montana that's a fairly easy draw for us residents it's a little bit tougher for non-residents so it's like that missouri breaks area if you've ever heard of that oh yeah and uh, the missouri breaks is like the crown jewel of montana like there's a lot of good elk hunting in montana but the breaks um they only give 50 rifle tags per year so they don't kill many bulls out of there and so you get like this older age class of six point bulls that'll that'll grow up in there and also like the breaks doesn't have any wolves it doesn't have any grizzly bears so the the elk populations as they dipped in other places as we dealt with the wolves and trying to handle those yeah. uh the the elk populations in the breaks ha have flourished and so like i i like hunting that place but i also love hunting the mountains so this year, I've got a general tag also in Idaho. So they changed the regulations this year in Idaho, and everybody had to go on on one certain date and get their elk tag. So I've got a good unit that I've killed a couple bulls in the last couple years uh, that I'm real proud of. Uh, and I did not get that unit. I went on and logged on at Idaho at eight in the morning. And I think my position in line was 9,450. So oh, like, wow. uh, I, I actually found out that it wasn't just at nine o'clock. You went on at 845 and then you got a number for nine o'clock when you could get in. So it was hmm. a bit of a gray area getting tags this year, but I did end up with, uh, another Idaho unit that I've hunted before where it's got like a, a real big elk in it, but not these high populations, you uh -huh. know? So I'll go there. It's down off the Nevada border. So it's a desert unit. So I'll go there and then I'm still waiting. Let's see. I didn't draw Wyoming. I'm trying to think if I've got any draws that are left to come out that I'm thinking I may draw an elk tag, but now I think I'm going to be Idaho and Montana for elk this year, but there's such great hunting there. Um, you know, and I'm up North, so I focus Montana, Idaho, Wyoming has super general season elk hunting. You know, so I'm going to have five points in Wyoming after the, well, um, preference points go on sale in July, Wyoming for non-residents. And I'll have five points there, which I think means I should be able to draw a pretty decent unit yes. um, next year if I want to do that, if I want to burn my points. Yeah, make sure you get a hold of the Eastmans. Those guys know Wyoming like the back of their hands. They'll be able to advise you someplace good for five points. But yeah, five points, uh, that's like a dream in Wyoming. They have some great elk hunting there. So yeah. yeah, definitely take advantage of that. You know, I don't hunt Colorado much. It's closer to you guys. And there are some, there is some great elk hunting in Colorado. They have like a lot of general season units where you can get an over-the-counter tag. And really the key to being a good elk hunter is like elk hunting as much as you can. Trying to do mm -hmm. it every year like you're doing, trying to gather that information. But I don't tend to focus much on Colorado as they're, so much uh, you pressure know, in Colorado. Yeah, they there's so much pressure and they, you know, there there aren't the the giant bulls that I want to target. Now there are there. I have seen really good bulls there, but I don't really target there as much. I target New Mexico just like you do. Like I'll make the drive to New Mexico. They have great elk. And then also uh Arizona, I apply. Um and, and I wanna draw 
some of the better units. Like I can hunt um, tougher units in Idaho and Montana because I'm closer. I can scout more. I can hunt it every year. But if I'm going to drive that 25 hours to New Mexico or Arizona, like I, I want to make sure I got a, a good chance at killing a uh, a good bull. And now I don't need to kill a 400 inch bull or have a chance at that. Really, like once we start to get in that 320 range, I start getting really excited. That's a six point I just can't let walk. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a good oh, one yeah. for me. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. So yeah, Montana and Idaho this year. And then, you know, we were talking muleys early. I drew my Colorado uh, early season mule deer tag. And so, yeah, it's above timberline at 13,000 feet. And so that's where I'll be, uh, nice. right at that beginning of September is all it's a backpack hunt, carry everything you need on your back. And I've got this spot in there. It's, it's a, it's a long ways back in there, but I've never seen another hunter in there. And the, the last time I was in there, I killed a, a 206 eights, like a, just a really nice, mm. deep, heavy buck and haven't been in there for about three years or so. So I'm just super stoked to go in there and, and do that hunt and then switch gears to elk for, for Idaho and Montana. Right on. Well, Hey, if you want to give us the, uh, the details on Eastman's elevated, um, where folks can find that. And then also your, Instagram page or, or Facebook, whatever you use to, uh, to get your content out there. Yeah. Thanks cable. So yeah, Eastman's elevated is the podcast. So we're about, I think we've been doing it. I think we're into our sixth year now and it's just amazing. We've just, um, uh, uh built this audience over there. It's, it's really fun doing it. Uh, put out weekly episodes. You can find it anywhere where you find podcasts and then social media. I'd say I'm most active on Instagram. We've got an Eastman's elevated page and then, um, also, uh, uh run a personal page, uh, Brian underscore Barney on Instagram. Awesome. Well, Brian, I appreciate the insight today, man. I hope you have a great fall. And I don't know, you said you're going to Hawaii for access year. I don't know if that's before um, elk season, mule deer. But uh, if it is, man, I, I look forward to seeing some some images of that because uh, that's certainly on the bucket list. Axis deer with a bow in Hawaii would be awesome. Man, it's going to be so fun. Yeah, headed out in July. So that'll be oh, cool. before those hunts. So yeah, awesome. definitely be some content that falls. It's such a beautiful place and such a, a fun species to hunt. So yeah, I can't wait. Absolutely. Well, good luck, man. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you on down the road. Yep. Good hunting to you. All right. So there you have it. The uh, summer doldrums elk hunting episode. I found some very valuable insight there from Brian. Uh, certainly appreciate his time today. Speaking of time, unfortunately, we're flat out of it. Got to go. Got to get out of here. So thanks to Brian. Also, thanks to Zeno Keeney, our other guest on today's episode. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. I can see the train from start to finish without a damn thing in my way. Try not to lose my place I don't know where it's headed And I don't know from where it came There's nothing like the lonesome side of the West Texas game